John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark in the nail of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When we run into somebody that we weren't expecting to see, we can have one of two reactions. One can be the the reaction of delight, and the other can be the reaction of embarrassment. Uh, Depending on what we're doing at the time, or depending on our relationship to that person. And we might say, on the one hand, I wasn't expecting to see you here, showing that I'm very glad to see you. Or, I might say something like, I I, I wasn't expecting to see you here, and showing my embarrassment for that presence of the, the presence of that person unexpectedly. Now, there is something that we find in all the Gospel accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And that is, nobody was expecting it. Nobody, as, nobody was expecting Jesus to show up. Nobody of his disciples was anticipating this. And this is remarkable, because as we read the Gospels, all of them, Jesus clearly announces in all of the Gospels that he is going to die and that he is going to rise again. In John, he said this very clearly. He said, you will, in a little while, you will not see me, and then in a little while again, you will see me. And they didn't understand it. And now, this is interesting, just as a side note, this is a note of authenticity in the gospel accounts. Why? Because no one was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he had announced it. And this reflects poorly, it reflects poorly on his disciples. But his disciples are the ones who are responsible for the gospel accounts. And so, in the gospel accounts, they present themselves not in the best of light, which is what humans tend to do. They present themselves as they really were. 
they were not expecting to see Jesus. Now, what we have here are two appearances of Jesus. And in the rest of the Gospel, the rest of chapter 20 and in chapter 21, we have appearances of Jesus and conversations with His disciples. We have two of those today. And we have the interactions which are instructive, the interactions that Jesus had with His disciples. Now, we don't know who was present at this appearance, or either of these two appearances. It says that the disciples were present. And then, in the second appearance, it says that Thomas was with them, and he was one of the twelve. So we don't know if it were, were if they were just the, the eleven remaining disciples who were there, and Thomas wasn't there, so ten the first time, and then eleven the second time, or if there were more disciples there, because disciple is a broad word for the followers of Jesus. And I'm inclined to think that there were more there, because the, the, the band of disciples was bigger than just the, the twelve apostles, now minus Judas, eleven apostles. But however that might be, in interpreting what we're going to find in these conversations, these instructions and these promises and these commands are for disciples of Jesus Christ. We ought not to interpret what Jesus says and does here as restricted to the eleven or the ten, and then including Thomas, the eleven. And that's important interpretive principle as we see what Jesus says here. So what we have in the first encounter is Jesus commissioning His disciples. His disciples. Uh, in John chapter 20, 19 to 23, the first appearance. But we ought to notice the similarities between these two appearances. They both appear, they both happen on Sundays. So they appear, uh, Jesus appeared to them on one Sunday, and then it says eight days later, uh, that's, uh, that's a week later on the next Sunday, Jesus appeared to them again. In both instances, the doors were locked. It says that twice. The doors were locked. Verse 19, verse 26. And in both instances, it says that Jesus stood among them. Now, There's a great deal of speculation about how Jesus got in there with the doors being locked. The the Gospels don't speculate on that. They don't tell us what His his, uh, resurrected body was able to do. It just says that the doors were locked and Jesus was there. And it doesn't go into speculation about how Jesus was able to do that. Um, But also it says that Jesus spoke. He spoke the typical Jewish greeting. And by the way, this is to this day the typical Jewish greeting of of peace be with you. And he spoke it three times. He spoke it in verse 19. He spoke it in verse 21. He spoke it in verse 26. And also, similarity between the two accounts, the two appearances, in both instances, Jesus showed his hands and he showed his side, his side that had been pierced with the spear. In the other Gospels, it emphasizes his hands and his feet, but John mentions the detail about Jesus being pierced in the side, and so here he shows his hands and he shows his side. So those are the similarities between these two accounts. Now let's look at the the differences as well. In the first one, we have this commissioning of the disciples. So in verse 19, Jesus appears to them. He says, peace be with you. Now, That's remarkable in and of itself, isn't it? What's the last thing that the disciples had done? Jesus was being arrested, and the disciples did what? They took off. 
They left him. They abandoned him. And so you might think that the first words out of Jesus' mouth would be something like, where were you when I needed you? Why did you leave me? You left me all alone. Some sort of a a rebuke to them, but it wasn't any of that. It was, peace be with you. And it's also significant because if you go back to chapter 14, Jesus had promised peace. He had said, my peace I give you. And my peace isn't like the world. I don't give you like the world. I give you my peace. And now, He has died. And He has risen from the dead. And now He announces peace. What kind of peace? Well, now there can be peace between sinners and God. Why? Because Jesus has died. And Jesus has risen from the dead. Peace be with you. That takes on new significance in the light of what Jesus has done in dying and in rising from the dead. And then, He gives them the commission. He says, after showing them his hands and his side, he says, As the Father, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's the commission. He doesn't tell them what to do yet. We'll get to that later. But he just simply says, Even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now the tenses here are interesting. Because he uses the tense, uh, the perfect tense, to talk about the fact that he was sent. And he says, as the Father has sent me. And the perfect tense in, in the Greek language has this idea, that it's an action in the past, the effects of which continue into the present. And so when he says, as the Father has sent me, he's indicating that he is the sent one. So he is not simply saying, I was sent, and I'm done with my being sent, and now it's your turn to be sent. He's saying, no, I have been sent, and now I am inviting you all to participate in my being sent. And we have seen this idea all through the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the sent one. He is the one sent from the Father. And now he is saying to the disciples, I am sending you even as I am perpetually the sent one. I have been sent out, and I am inviting you to participate in my sentedness, in my, in my having been sent from the Father. Now, in all, of the, in all of the accounts of what we call the Great Commission, the Great Commission is Jesus commissioning His disciples to go make more disciples of all the nations. In all of those, there is this idea that we have to go in order to do it. That we cannot stay where we are. We have to go in order to do it. And here he says to his disciples, not just the apostles, because this is a a, a command for Jesus' disciples until the end of the age, we have to go in order to make disciples. We have to go in order to do what Christ is commissioning us to do. And it is striking... It is striking throughout the history, and striking and distressing, throughout the history of the church, and in our present day, that is something that is often absent. Because, it's notable, I was a missionary for 28 years in another country, and it's it's notable that people treat a missionary call, a call to go, as something extraordinary. And we found that all the time. People would treat that as something out of the ordinary. Wow! 
you went somewhere else as a, as a missionary. That's, that's really out of the norm. That's so unusual. How did, how did that happen? As if it were something strange. And you see where we are as a church, if that's our attitude. When Jesus says, this is the normal thing, folks. We need to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And in order to do that, we must do what? We must go. And why must we go? Because Jesus sent us to go. Now that's the first thing. And that is pretty overwhelming. But the next thing he does gives us comfort and hope because he first commissions his disciples and then he equips his disciples with what we need for the going. And that is his own Holy Spirit. He says to them in verse 21, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 2, we find the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And so there is a huge body of literature and debate about how what Jesus did did here relates to what happened on Pentecost when Jesus gave the promise of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, um, we need to, to, to look at a couple of things here in order to interpret this well. One is this. By anybody's account, there is symbolism going on here. Because Jesus breathed, breathed. And nobody suggests that His physical breath is the Holy Spirit. And so, there's something symbolic going on here. Every interpretation admits that. And then there's another detail that we need to take into account. And it it gives us something of a head fake, I think. Because our interpreters, they smooth out the, the text, and sometimes they have to add words to do that. And it says here uh, that, in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. But, in the, in the, the original text, the words on them are not there. Now, if, if, it, if he just said, uh, if the text just said, And Jesus breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit then it wouldn't give us the idea that He was somehow giving them the Holy Spirit in that moment. But when we add those words, on them, that gives us the idea, which is not communicated in the text, that in that moment, He was giving them the Holy Spirit. And and those who go with that idea, they have kind of a double Pentecost, or a mini Pentecost, and then the real thing, or... Uh, they do various things, or it's the same thing and told in two different ways. I don't think we need to come up with any sort of uh, explanation like that, because Jesus is doing something symbolic here. He is breathing. And what's that indicate? Breath, spirit, that He is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And He says, receive the Holy Spirit. When? Well, when the Spirit is given. And when would that be? At Pentecost. So this is in anticipation of Pentecost, but indicating that He is the one who gives the Spirit. And why does He give the Spirit? Because He has just sent us. He has just sent us out into the world. What do we need? We need Jesus with us. 
And in Matthew, the version there, he says, I will be what? With you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us when we go out to the nations to take the good news to the nations? How is He with us? Not physically. Physically, He's at the right hand of the Father. Spiritually, by His Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. So, He sends us out. He equips us with the Spirit. And then the last thing He says here, which also, as you can imagine, has caused a lot of a lot of head-scratching and a lot of different interpretations. He says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, in the history of the Western Church particularly, this has developed, and you see this in the Roman Catholic Church to this day, into the idea of a priesthood that follows from the apostles that have a special authority to forgive sins. And that's why in the Roman Catholic Church, you, you go to the priest, and you confess your sins to the priest, and the priest assigns you a penance, and then the priest can say, I absolve you, I forgive you. Because the idea is that this was given only to the apostles and to those who follow in the apostolic succession. But remember the principle that I mentioned at the beginning. What is given here is not just given to a piece of the church or a class of people in the church. What is given here, the commission, the Holy Spirit, and this forgiving of sins, it's given to the whole church. It's given to disciples. So what does this mean? Well, this is the message that we preach. When we go to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, what is the message we preach? We don't preach, I can forgive you because of some authority that I have. No, we preach that God can forgive you. And by the way, once again, this is the perfect tense. This is an action in the past, the effects of which come into the future, or come into the present, and continue in the future. And it is passive. So it says, if you forgive sins, they are forgiven. But we could translate that a bit more literally. If you forgive sins of any... They have been forgiven. So it's something that's already happened, and it is passive. That is, I didn't do it, you didn't do it, it was done. Well, who did it? It's the divine passive. God is the one who forgives sins. He's the only one who forgives sins. So what is our role? Our role is to go out into the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit and to pronounce forgiveness of sins on those who believe in Jesus and to retain the sins on those who refuse to believe in Jesus, because their sins remain on them. And we cannot say your sins are forgiven, because they're not, if they reject the offer of the forgiveness of sins. So let's put these things together. Jesus sends us out, gives us the Holy Spirit, and He tells us the message and the ministry that we have, which is a ministry of forgiveness of sins, pronouncing the forgiveness of sins on those who accept the gift of forgiveness bought by Jesus, given by the Father. Now, as I said, some believe... And some don't. And that determines whether we're forgiven or not. And now, speaking of believing and not believing, we have somebody who didn't believe. He wasn't there. He was Thomas. And now we go to the second appearance, because Thomas, it says, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples had said, Thomas, 
You're never going to believe what happened. Well, literally, he didn't believe what happened. But uh, Thomas, guess what happened? We have seen the Lord. And he showed us his hands. And he showed us his side. And Thomas said, adamantly, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I'm not going to be taken in. I've been, I've been disillusioned once already. When I, when, I, when I knew that Jesus died, we followed Him these three years. I gave my life to Him. I, I built my life around Him. I gave up so much to follow Him. I'm not going to be taken in again. And you're saying you've seen Him. I won't believe it until I see exactly what you say you have seen. Now, sometimes we're hard on Thomas. What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? But now let's remember that all the others had seen just what Thomas was asking to see. So he's not much different from they. They just got to jump on it. They got to see exactly what he was asking to see. And he was doubting, so that's not wrong. But they had an advantage that he didn't have. They had seen Jesus, and they had seen his hand and seen his side. Now here we have, eight days later, inside again, and the doors are what? Locked again, and Jesus once again stood among them, and Jesus once again said, Peace be with you. So the same, same uh, protocol here. And then he says to Thomas, verse 27, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. Now, now wait, before we go on, how did Jesus know what Thomas had said? Jesus knew the conversation, and he, hadn't, he wasn't there. But here's just a, an indirect affirmation of who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't there, and he knew what Thomas had said. And so he says to Thomas, knowing Thomas' words, he says, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Or perhaps, do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. And we don't know what Thomas did at that point. We don't know if he took Jesus up on it, if he actually put his finger in his hand and put his hand in his side. But I sort of doubt it. I think probably seeing Jesus was sufficient. And Thomas's response is remarkable. In verse 27, rather verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, the, the Greek for this is this. Not in Greek, but if Greek translated into English with the, the Greek word order and so on. The God of me and the Lord of me. I got that backwards. It's Lord first. The Lord of me and the God of me. Now you will run into people who do all they can to deny that Jesus is God, and that the New Testament presents Jesus as God. And they will do all they can to deny what this verse means. But there is really no grammatical way around this. Whether or not you believe Jesus is God, Thomas did. That is clear. That much is clear. Thomas was saying, the Lord, which in a Jewish the mouth of a Jew, there is only one Lord, the Lord of me and the God 
of me. And in a Jew's mind, there is only one God. So the Lord of me and the God of me. And he's saying that, it says here, to Jesus. To Jesus. And if he had been mistaken, Jesus would have corrected him, wouldn't he? He would have said, oh, no, 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 Thomas, you've gone too far. No, no, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm this. But, but far from correcting Thomas, Jesus applauded Thomas' discovery. How did Jesus respond? He said this. He said in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Now once again, you may have some different translations here. In many translations, this is, I think, correctly translated as a statement rather than a question. Because if we translate it as a question like here, it sounds almost like a rebuke, doesn't it? Have you believed because you have seen me? As if he had done something wrong. But if we turn it into a statement, not turn it into a statement, because it doesn't change anything in the, in the, the, the original text, it's just there were no question marks in the original text, so we have to provide that. Um, if, we, if we read it as a statement, as many versions do, because you have seen me, you have believed. And it's not a rebuke, it's an observation. And it's even a, a congratulation. It, it's saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. However, in the Gospel of John, we have seen that sign faith is not optimal faith. Word faith is optimal faith. Believing the words of Jesus, that's optimal faith. Sign faith is true faith, if it's in Jesus, and yet it can be shaky. Even as we're seeing, it can be shaky here. And so even though Jesus is congratulating him and affirming what he said and affirming his faith, it was faith based on seeing. And if that is the optimal faith, where does that leave us? And where does that leave everyone except for the few thousands that got to see Jesus in the flesh? If that's the optimal faith, what we're going to have is some sort of second-rate faith. But notice what Jesus says. He says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. That's good. Good. But... Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Blessed, favored, happy. Because we could be reading this and thinking, wow, I sure would have liked to have seen that. And I'm at a, I'm at a disadvantage because I can't, I can't see the things that Jesus did. I can't see Him turn water into wine. I can't see Him raise people from the dead. I can't see Him multiply the bread. I can't see Him walk on the water. How am I to believe? And what kind of faith can I possibly have if I can't see with my own eyes? Well, only a few got to see. But since then, many, many millions have believed in Jesus. And Jesus here says, that's amazing. That's favored. That's happy. That is blessed. And so he is pronouncing this blessing on all today and in every age who have not seen but yet have believed. We're not in a disadvantageous situation. 
we also have the opportunity of hearing the Word and believing it. And here we have the first person witness of those who saw. And so we can have a faith just as good as theirs. Now, after these two appearances, the author of this book, and we'll talk about the author of this book, I've already gotten ahead of myself many times in in naming him, but he's not named anywhere in this book. We'll talk about that in the last sermon in this series. But here, the, the author of this book, he says, in case you missed it, I want to tell you why I'm writing this book. He says, I gave you some signs of Jesus, but these are just a few. I didn't give you all the signs of Jesus. He, gave, he did many other signs. Verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So what is he admitting? He is admitting, admitting that he is like any other historian. He is like any other historian. He was selective with the data that he had before him. Every history book is like that. And he's just being honest about it. He's saying, many other signs. I didn't write them all down. I wrote these down. And then he admitted that he had a purpose, a persuasive purpose in writing this book, just like any other historian. By the way, if you find a book that claims to be neutral, then then don't read that book. Because it's not. They're just trying to deceive you into thinking that they are. If you find news that says that it's neutral, it's not. If you find a history book that says that it's neutral, it isn't. So don't be taken in by that. Nobody is neutral. Everybody has a purpose. And he's telling us up front what his purpose is. Just like any other historian. What's his purpose? In case we missed it. But these are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you have heard this idea many times, but here's one parting shot of the author saying, this is really how I want you to respond to what I've written. I've put all this together so that you might believe, that you might believe what? Not just anything, because faith has specific content. The Christian faith is not just a feeling. The Christian faith has specific content. It's about Jesus And it is that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Sent One. And He is the Son of God, which means, as Thomas discovered, that He is God the Son. That is is part of the, the Christian faith, what we must believe in order to believe what Jesus has given us to believe. In order to be Christians, in order to be disciples. And here's the... Here's the the payoff. Here's the benefit. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's the benefit for us. Why should we believe? Well, we should believe because it's true. What do we get out of it? We get life in His name. Now, once again, you would think this would be uncontroversial, but there are two interpretations of the Gospel of John. And it has partly has to do with this verse. Some say the Gospel of John was written to Christians to encourage them in their faith. 
And others say, no, the Gospel of John was written to non-Christians to bring them to faith in Christ. And I find this debate to be senseless. Because the Gospel, when it is preached, does these two things always. The, The Word of God, when it is preached and explained and proclaimed, it does these two things. It, it brings unbelievers to faith in Jesus. And just as you know, if you're already a believer, it builds you up in your faith. I saw this last week. We looked at the resurrection and, and somebody who's been a believer for a long time came up to me afterward and said, oh, that was so encouraging. That was so encouraging to my faith to, to hear about the resurrection in which she had believed for decades. That's what the Word of God does. That's what the Gospel does. It brings people to faith and it builds us up in our faith. So, so we've gotten to the end. We've gotten to the end of the book, except for the epilogue. Fascinating epilogue. So, don't go away. Fascinating interactions that we'll have with Peter and with the beloved disciple. But we've gotten to the end of the, of the persuasive part of the book. The author has said, this is why I wrote it, folks. He's laying it all out. And so now the question for us is, has it had its effect in us? We've been following, some of us, this book for 20 chapters now. And we've been reading about these signs. We've been hearing Jesus' words. Has it worked for us? Has it brought us to faith in Christ and and brought us to have eternal life by believing in Jesus' name? Has it built us up in our faith? That's the purpose of the book. And if we go away from this book without faith in Jesus or without built up faith in Jesus, more faith in Jesus, then, then we have missed the point of the book. And so, once more, the invitation, here it is. Come to Jesus in faith. Believe in Him that He is the Messiah sent from God to die and rise again that He might give eternal life to all who trust in Him. And if you have believed that message for 80 years or for 8 days, then then be strengthened in this message. Because this is the old, old story that we never tire of hearing and we never leave the Gospel behind and move on to other things This is the message on which we build our lives as believers that Jesus was sent, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, and that we have life in Him. Let's pray. Our God, thank You again that we are here and still alive to hear this call today to believe in Jesus and to have life in His name. We pray, O God, for all who are hearing this word read and preached today in this church or in any other church around the globe, online, in presence, whatever it might be, that you would give faith by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, O God, that you would give us faith to believe this message and not only to believe it, but to take it out to the nations, even as you sent Jesus, you send us out as well. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who goes with us that we might take this glorious good news of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.